had an altercation. He's in his hospital bed. He throws a rock at the man. The man dodges it and laughs. And so tempers flared and Adrian shot the man in his ass with a small caliber <laughs> pistol. Was it a Flaubert gun? Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host who is not dead, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy. I remain not dead. Great. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, today is not the long-awaited day when we talk about Hitler and Jesus. Nor Mm. is it the day when we start the big topic we've been hinting at. Instead, we're doing something much more worthwhile, a listener request. (sighs) Did they request Hitler? No. Uh, oh, okay, so it had to be Jesus then. Well, actually, no. Well, can it at least be someone who hates the British, please? You know, it's funny you mention that, um, <laughs> because we'll actually be covering one of the most decorated soldiers in the history of the British Empire. What? No, 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 no. Calm down. Calm down. Put the gun down, Aaron. It's fine. Oh. It's fine. He's actually not British. I'll I'll let you explain how he's a decorated British soldier and is not British at the same time. I mean, I guess I can, I guess I can at least say, uh... Thank God. <laughs> Trust me, I do every day. So, uh, you said this was a, a listener request, so who can we thank for today's episode? We can thank Alex, who reached out to me over Facebook on the We Talk About Dead People page and requested this guy, and he, he even did specify, despite his being British, he would make a good episode. And I've got to say, Alex has a mustache that's as impressive as our character for today. So, I mean, I had to listen to that. Um, and I looked into it and I thought, you know what? I can I can sell out. I can put my scruples aside and cover a British war hero. Since he's not actually British, that's my sort of moral mental gymnastics to get out of it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so thank you to Alex for requesting this. It's been a cool episode to... Uh, Research, it's actually going to be a two-parter, so we're only going to be getting halfway today, and we'll be picking it up again soon, but it's a really cool story, and I think Aaron's going to love it. Yeah, hopefully, and we're kind of, no- you're kind of notorious for these multi-part episodes. I think it's, I think it just comes down to the fact that you're, you're too smart to contain it all in one document. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. You did you you had a really funny self-deprecating joke uh on the interview we did. Uh what was it you said it, something like it, good takes are not to be expected from me or something like that. <laughs> Either way, you played it so well. It was I listened back to it and I was like this dude is unintentionally hilarious. Uh many many times. You couldn't be intentionally hilarious, that's for sure. <laughs> true, true. It's that it's that German blood. There's no humor in there. <laughs> Must be. (laughs) Must be. Well, great. And I think before we roll down into the old history lab and get this thing on 
On wheels, we should get a few housekeeping items out of the way, because well, that's more than most of my roommates ever did. That's true. Uh, housekeeping is not for roommates, and it's always you, and never, never the roommates who does the, does the housekeeping. So let me, let's keep that pattern up. I will do the housekeeping for you today. How's that? Well, that almost makes up for the time you backed out when we were supposed to be roommates. Oh, that's right. Yep, well, we'll, we'll just, uh, I'll just not talk about that, because, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you ended up living with the person who needed a housekeeper <laughs> the most in the whole world. Oh my god. Care to describe what that room looked like by the end of the semester? Um, well, it was kind of, half of it was okay for the first first while. Half It was like the North Korea-South Korea border. There was kind of a line between, you know, heaven and hell. One side of it was meticulously clean and organized and arranged, and then the other side looked like the aftermath of a failed DEA raid, just minus the, you know, dead animals and stuff. Um, but I then don't know I about that. There might have been some dead animals there, in there. <laughs> there were some mold colonies, which I unfortunately had to exterminate. But, um, yeah, but at a certain point, I kind of gave up because the uh, it's entropy. It's one of the laws of thermo whatever, isn't it? That things always get shittier. And so <laughs> over time his half just kind of bled into my half, and there's only so much a mere man can do against such reckless filth. And eventually, I just kind of gave up and tried to spend as little time as possible in that hellhole. Reckless filth. I love it. Well, let's, uh, let's clean our minds then, and, uh, do, do the, do the cleaning on this show, the housekeeping, and, uh, we won't let it look like a, a like a reckless den of horrifying destruction and garbage. Um, okay, so here's the first thing. Uh, George and I were just recently talking about ways to create more content for people to listen to in between our regular episodes, and we're currently going through some ideas for that. It might just be that we sort of have a podcast and narrative dichotomy where some episodes we just do a podcast on a topic and actually have a conversation, you know, like an ordinary podcast. Um, this is gonna, this is so it will be easier for us to put out more content without doing the crazy amount of work it takes to get one of these things to completion. Um, it's just us, just the two of us making these researching, writing, recording, editing, etc. Uh, and we want to have a way to, you know, give you guys stuff to listen to because we, we both work and at least I know I work. <laughs> <laughs> you will be soon. Um, it's a ton. I mean, it's a ton to just do these narrative shows only. And I want to do more, I want to do more podcasting that uh, without having to stick to the narrative structure. So we got a crazy amount of good feedback on the interview and even strangely enough on the last update I put out. So uh, I think if we put regular style podcast shows out as well as the narrative ones, we could probably keep people listening and give people more to listen to um, without us literally breaking our eyes sitting in front of a computer doing all this research. Um, but that being said, we do have our next few episodes planned uh, as far as the narrative structure goes, and we are going to be rolling forward with them very soon. Especially now that Dan Carlin has started to produce Hardcore History again, we have our work cut out for us, and even though he gave us our initial boost by retweeting us on Twitter just once, which actually seemed to get us our entire core audience all those years ago... Uh, we we have to go to work again. If he's back to work, we 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 have to get more out. And he only releases like once a year or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, somebody so. on Discord while I was gaming asked me if I was Dan Carlin. Really? Yeah. 
Well, I said I, you could probably not yet. pull off a dandelion. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a long way to go. <laughs> Woo! Anyway, so the last thing I wanted to say is we appreciate all of that support, all the feedback, the reviews, five-star reviews are so valuable in the podcasting world. And we're so glad that many of you still support us, even through the difficulties of this last year and a half or so with job changes, schedule changes, life changes, and more. It's been good to have support and love from the listeners we have. So thanks so much for sticking with the, with us, especially if you're a longtime listener and or donor to the show. I don't I don't know how to say it, but it it fills my heart with with joy knowing that people shut the hell out up, there, Aaron. What 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 what? It was getting too sappy for me. I'm I'm here for All the right. history, man. Okay, I I know, but uh, it, this is a this is a tactic that we have to use as independent media creators to to sh we have to shill our stuff every now and then. Okay, so the people people who are out there supporting us, thanks for sticking with us. Here's a bro fist through the computer. Um, that was not a PewDiePie reference, so take that take that. <laughs> so with all that said, let's go ahead and get started with the amazing story of. Adrian Carton de Virt. Is that right? Uh, that, was, that was acceptable. Alright. Well, that acceptable's good enough for me. Let's get this thing rolling. What fights for the British Empire has one eye, one hand, and more broken bones than your average... average... <laughs> What fights for the British Empire has one eye, one hand, and more broken bones than your average English schoolchild could count? A Belgium man. A Belgium <laughs> man? That's like a waffle. That's a... <laughs> Come on. A man who really liked polo likes? <laughs> What were you drinking before we I was, started? I was literally typing this as to, as I was talking to you, so I was distracted oh, by your brilliance. Alright, alright. All right. Here we go again. This is the last take, and I, I swear that's it. What fights for the British Empire has one hand, one eye, and more broken bones than your average English schoolchild could count? A Belgian man in Egypt, of course. Join us today for the confusing tale of Adrian Carton de Vert, a man who has a strange name and also really likes polo. So, George, it seems like day by day things are only getting stranger out there. The 2021 year of pain is halfway gone. We've discussed historical reboots and appear to be staring at least something like one right in the face right now whether we like it or not. And I like to think of us as at least dimly intelligent and aware of the world that might be coming to us. So I'd like to ask this very specific question. Where are you on the spectrum of apocalyptic preppers right now? Well, it's, it's hard to answer because if it was up to me, I would just live in a, you know, cave off the grid somewhere. But unfortunately, there are certain circumstances that prevent me from doing that. And so ultimately, I, I can't survive in the long run in a uh, Stone Age society due to some medical issues. So, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of uh, kind of along for the ride. And I've got, you know, I've got some things stocked up and hopefully won't have to won't have to use them too much. But, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to be ready for anything. 
um because it's yeah. not it's not a pretty picture usually doesn't end well and it, i think that uh i think that howdy the other week or the other month or the other year or whatever the hell that was was right that things do seem to be accelerating in a sense but i just try to try to you know live in the here and now and work on what i can work on and try to not get too uh too worked up about things that are out of my control yeah, yeah, that's about where I am. Though I would, I would have stuck you somewhere between like the, uh, the uh, Mad Max like motorcycle chariot rider and uh, maybe like I am Legend, <laughs> like an academic but also kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I put you in, put you between uh, Will Smith and uh, and Mad Max. What about uh, what if about I... Book of Eli? Ooh. I might put you on Book of Eli. I might put you on Book of Eli. Though so you're not blind. Um, That's true. <laughs> and you're not Denzel Washington, so... And I also, like to just... I also don't read the King James Version, so... That's that's true. So he's missing half the information, isn't he? The, the Protestants got rid of half the Bible or something like that, and then the Gnostics wrote some fan fiction or some shit? Wild um, times in the third century. Just crazy. Just crazy. So now you're supposed to ask me what what's part of the spectrum I'm on. Go ahead. I'm not afraid. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm not afraid. Try it. All right, Aaron. Where on the spectrum of apocalyptic peppers are you? Peppers? <laughs> Good God. Somewhere between a Carolina Reaper and one of those weird ones from Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, spectrum of apocalyptic peppers. I think you have categories, right? I think you have... I think you have, uh, like, you know, your doomsday nuclear holocaust type preppers, and then you have your, like, your, like, AI took over the world kind of preppers. I'm more like, uh, BlackRock is buying all of the real estate and is only going to let people rent in the future kind of prepper. So I would put myself somewhere between the, uh, the TP-dwelling, uh, prairie huntsman and, um, perhaps the anti-corpo anti-neo-fascist futurist uh, activist like Johnny Silverhand in Cyberpunk 2077. You know, really so is, Keanu um, Reeves. <laughs> it really is amazing how the modern world has actually succeeded at even making feudalism cringe. I know, right? <laughs> it's kind of, it's like, you know, I said this last year and I only said it to people I trusted because it sounded so crazy. I said, we're headed for neo-feudalism and it's gonna suck. We're not even gonna have castles. And people were like, you know, the people I told were like, I don't know, man, that's out there. And I'm like, don't like it's there. It's it's going to have it's happening right now. And I actually talked to a buddy of mine who's in real estate. Um, he says they've been doing this for years and they've just doubled down and triple accelerated the program this year of buying people's homes and turning them into rental properties. So uh, if you have a house and a piece of land, don't sell it. I don't care how much they're offering you. Don't just don't sell that because. Uh, <laughs> Ugh, I don't know. I hate I hate to think of what it would be like living in the pod and eating the bugs out of the vending machine in my my living room, like Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Um, yeah, but hey, that, I don't think any of that's depressing. I think it's a very exciting time to be alive. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on, and you know, with an ounce of awareness, it can be really fun. Uh, with no awareness, oh my god, I I pray for you. <laughs> Good luck out there. <laughs> I'm just hoping well, anyway. that my uh, my beard is long enough to qualify as tribal chieftain in time. I think you've I think you're probably miles ahead of the majority of American men at this point. They're just drinking fluoride, watching porn and uh 
I don't know, playing video games. I, I don't know what they, I don't know what those guys do out there, but I, I <laughs> just, just glad to know at least one of us has a respectable beard. So we know who to look to when times get dark. <laughs> I will do my best. Okay. Well, here we are. It's been such a long time. I would like to ask, well, actually, I would like to command the computer before it starts commanding me. Computer, please bring up Adrian Carton DeVert. Well, Aaron, you know the drill. Would you please start by describing the charming picture I've presented before you? It's... Uh, <sighs> okay, so my initial reaction to this photo was, oh my god, like, how far we have fallen. Like, you look at this guy and he's got these steely eye. Okay, he has a steely eye because he's got an eye patch. <laughs> um, legendary mustache. Uh, very neatly kept, very short hair. But I think the most noticeable thing, aside from the fact that he's missing an eye, missing a hand, carrying a cane, and is uh, looking like he's about to kill people, um, the widest part of this man's out, this man's silhouette, is his thighs. <laughs> this may be the thickest character we've covered on We Talk About Dead People, and I can put that in the official. In the official record book, this boy is... This lad is a thick lad. <laughs> well, as as we'll see, he was really, really into uh, horseback riding and a lot of different sports and stuff, so it does kind of make sense, but I, I'm i going to admit that wasn't what I was expecting you to sort of focus in on on the description. Yeah, well... <laughs> I mean... Uh, <laughs> that's the first time we've had a, a thick character altogether. <laughs> What's funny, though, is that his upper body appears to be rather slender, and the thickness that I'm describing is just the uh, the style of pants, I guess, they were wearing in yeah, that the, uniform. The, the jodhpurs, the riding pants. Is that what they are? Yep. Interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, but aside from the aside from the jodhpurs, uh, the, the uh, amazing coat... And the, uh, I don't know what you call that kind of, uh, that kind of belt with the little s strap across the chest. Uh, Sam Brown belt. Okay. Those are amazing, and I hope they come back in style. I have one. Um, oh, that's, that's right. I seem to remember you had one of those. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> As aside from all that, I mean, this is, this is one intimidating looking dude, I gotta say. Um, I can't believe I've never seen a picture of him. That before. one eye is really impressive, too. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't need more than one. This looks like a man tell. who just doesn't blink. Well, I mean, he's definitely blinking on one side all the time. Yeah, because it's gone. <laughs> I'm a little out of practice. So, <laughs> is that is that an adequate description? You think? Can we move right into the story? Then? I I think so. I think so. All right, take it away. All right, so let's begin. So, our man today is Adrian Carton de Viert, and he is as you've most likely surmised, uh, not really the possessor of the most British of British names. I mean, Adrian, that, that could be British. Um, Carton de Viert isn't quite what you expect from your average North FC fan. And there's a very good reason for that. Uh, he's not British at all. And, oh, okay. <laughs> um, yep, and therefore his name is not British. In fact, our hero was born on the 5th of May, 1880, in Brussels, which is not the most British of cities. He was the oldest son of some equally non-British people named Leon Constant Carton de Viert and Ernestine Venson, uh, who were proper upstanding Belgians, so I assume they probably had a lot of chocolate or something. 
And <laughs> it should be noted, however, that one of his grandparents was Irish, so he had that going for him. Well, that's a matter of perspective, uh, whether so you we've like got the Irish or not. Three, three quarters waffle, one quarter potato. Um, nice. <laughs> that's why so, he's so thick. The thickest potato <laughs> pancake. All right. <laughs> and uh, so his family was well-to-do and aristocratic. His father was a uh, successful Belgian lawyer. And there was a rumor that spread around later that his family was so aristocratic that he was actually the illegitimate son of the King of Belgium. But from the research I did, there doesn't seem to be much substance to this rumor, and Adrian himself was known to find it quite humorous. Well, that's the kind of rumor that you kind of want floating around there. You don't dispel that one, right? Yeah, that I mean... It, potentially royalty. Yeah, you're the legit illegitimate son of the king is definitely better than that you're, like, the illegitimate son of the town clown. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, Adrian's first three years were spent at home in jolly old Belgium uh, nice. with his parents, but unfortunately there isn't a lot more to be said about his uh, infancy since, as Adrian himself tells us in his memoirs, the starched uniform of his nurse must have obscured his vision since he can't remember anything from when he was an infant. Wow, it's nothing it's at all. It's what he says. He says, my nurse's uniform must have blocked my view because I have no memory of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this, guy's, I mean, this guy's memoirs were a trip, let me tell you what. I, I would love you to describe more of that as we go along, how they're a trip. So, <laughs> so when he was uh, about three, the family moved to Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? Egypt. Egypt, good. So that's also yeah. not Britain. Well, hmm. kind of, kind of, you know, geopolitical Depends. circumstances. But there in Alexandria, his father presumably did businessy lawyer things, and Adrian presumably continued to grow, and perhaps Pre even to perceive things. Wow, he's got one eye. <laughs> so, uh, he has two at, the, at this point. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. So, <laughs> soon enough, however, his father's business things brought them to England, where Adrian says he has hazy memories of being transformed into an English child, and beginning to speak his native French with a British accent. Would you mind explaining to me and to the listeners why a Belgian would speak French? We just uh, covered two Belgians. Because most of Belgium, well, Belgium is part francophone and part lemophone. Part of the part of Belgium speaks Flemish. I don't know if flemophone is a word. It should be, <laughs> but part of Fran, part of Belgium is French speaking. Part is Flemish speaking. I see. You know what? Uh, a flemophone. That's just a that's just a uh, a trumpet without the the spit catcher in it. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, wow. there you go. That's my joke for the day. So, uh, yeah, so he's being transformed into an English child, presumably in some horrific process. Um, soon, however, school. tragedy struck, as it so often does in the stories we cover. Like, for real, there are a lot of downers. Um, and Adrian's mother passed away when he was but six years of age. Oh. So this led his father, old Leon, to decide it was time to move yet again and since he had considerable connections in Egypt, since that's where he'd been doing lawyery things, he brought the family to Cairo, where he practiced law and also directed an electric railway company that also managed houses and hotels. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not sure how this all goes together, but he was the he was the director of an electric railway company that also built hotels. And, in and fact, he was also a lawyer. And he was a lawyer. This Busy is completely man. irrelevant, but I thought it was cool. The presidential palace of Egypt currently was actually built as a hotel by this company. That's amazing. That's it. That's very interesting. So yeah, they built like, like really nice hotels, and they built these apartment sort of blocks 
that were separated from the main city. Um, mm. But that because what else did they do besides hotels? Electric railways. They'd have a little electric rail line that brought you from your little isolated apartment village into downtown. Oh, man. The future is behind us. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so during this time right. when his father is busy um, doing electric railway company hotel things, Adrian was looked after by his father's sister, who moved with her family to Egypt to help out her brother, and to make sure, this is very important, that Adrian started speaking proper French again. He actually mentions this in his memoirs, that his uh, his aunt was very insistent that he maintain a proper French accent since he'd started to sound like a little British child. Ah, can't have those glottal stops in the French language, we can don't, you? We don't want those British. No. <laughs> so, a few years later, however, Adrian's father remarried to a English woman who was the traveling companion of a Turkish princess, which, the, the 19th century was just a crazy time. Like, ah yes, Wild. I'm a British woman, I'm going to be the traveling companion to a Turkish princess, and then I'm going to marry a Belgian lawyer who manages hotels and electric railways in Egypt. I don't know why the British woman sounds like a man who narrates for the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a wild time. And this, uh, this British woman had, as Adrian says, a strong will and a violent temper and mm. cleared the house of extraneous relations. So I guess she sent the Francophone Belgians packing. Well, that's... Uh... It's normal, I guess. <laughs> yeah. She also directed little eight-year-old Adrian's attention towards sports and outdoor activities, and he was even given a Flaubert rifle with which he harassed the wretched Egyptian sparrow, to use his words. And a Flaubert rifle is actually kind of cool. I, I have one. It's a rifle designed for indoor shooting. Whoa. It's what, the, in what way? It's a ridiculously low-powered twenty-two. A lot of times <laughs> they didn't even have gunpowder. They would just have the... The uh, primer would be all the only propellant, so primer, so it would propel the bullet, but at very low power. And they were made originally for indoor shooting, like carnivals and stuff. You know, when you like shoot little ducks and win yeah. the prize. That's what they were made for. Was for indoor shooting. Well, and, and at gonna... eight, he got one to harass the wretched Egyptian sparrows. I would like to point out that is a quote, a clear quote. He's harassing wretched Egyptian sparrows. It's too bad he couldn't get some Egyptian plovers. <laughs> And save the person who was killed at my school, but hey. Sad. Sad. So by this point, Adrian, despite only being eight years old, could speak three languages, French, English, and the Arabic of Egypt. And his family brought in an Italian governess to try to make him learn Italian as well, but that was just, that was a bridge over the river quite too far, and Adrian was not enthusiastic about it. In his words, uh, describing his Italian governess, would you like to read this quote? In your Should best I read it? Is a British... Like, yes, your British disdainful voice. Our dislike was mutual, her authority doubtful, and her reign brief. <laughs> yep. Was that disdainful enough? That was pretty disdainful. I was feeling nice. it. I was, I was getting a little sad, but... So he, uh, yeah, didn't get along with the Italian governess and did not learn Italian. And so he was sent off after this to a French school in Cairo... Which the only the only thing he says about it, he says it was memorable only because he was allowed to ride his horse every day. Well, I mean, that's pretty great getting to be able to ride your horse. Yeah, I mean, fun, <laughs> was this fun like times. to and from school, or was this lessons? Like at school, something? he was allowed to take his horse out for exercise during the day. That's kind of that's that's kind of sweet. I, <laughs> I won't lie. 
That's nice. Now, now before before you carry on, I just have one one thing to add to this. All right, please carry on. Okay. So 19th century Egypt not being a place of uh, great hygiene and healthcare overall, uh, the boy was frequently sick and before too long had to leave school because of it, and in that case his family resorted to, quote, an inefficient tutor. That's all he hmm. says about it. An Fair inefficient enough. tutor. So who this tutor was, what he was taught, lost to the shrouds of time. Mm, but probably during some... the Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, during the summers, uh, the family stayed at a vacation home on the sea in the Egyptian city of Ramla, I believe, where Adrian learned to swim due to the impeccable teaching of his British stepmother. That's the one with the strong will and violent temper. And right, he there's... says that she, <clears throat> and I quote, proved herself an inspired swimming instructor by the simple expedient of throwing me in. Well, she is from England, and there's only one way to cross the channel, so you'd better be... A good swimmer, and you'd better be pretty ferocious, because, you know, she had to cross the channel to get here, didn't she? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's... Isn't there a John Wayne movie where he teaches someone to swim by throwing them in a river? I think I saw memes for that a while back. <laughs> yeah, I think I did too. Anyway, that's what happened, and I like that though. An inspired swimming instructress. <laughs> <laughs> Love the way people talk back then. So, as for the rest of his childhood, Adrian himself sums it up with this little vignette. Aaron, would you please? A miniature gym erected in the garden, an irrepressible mania for catching frogs, and a love of pageantry and all things military. Honestly, sounds like a pretty good childhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the irrepressible mania for catching frogs. I know some <laughs> people like that. You know who you are. <laughs> so, Adrian's father's legal work in Egypt was very successful, and since the British were ruling Egypt at the time, he was eventually admitted to the English bar as well, and became a naturalized British subject, purely for business reasons. Uh, Adrian assures us that his father never really considered himself British, and remained a Belgium, a Belgian. I said it again, damn it. And I love this, his father, quote, always struck him as a foreigner. Huh. <laughs> and although they were, quote, on very good terms, and I admired and respected him, but we were never intimate. Our interests lay too far apart for real understanding. He was a hard-working indoor man, while I was idle and loved the out-of-doors. Huh. Idle and loved the out-of-doors. Hmm. Yep, well, That's his, quite a difference. His father's Not like running hotels and electric trams and stuff. And he's just playing out and presumably on this <laughs> catching frogs and presumably climbing all over the pyramids or something like that. So most likely, most likely. Yeah. But as I love that his father always struck him as a foreigner. <laughs> I wonder what wonder what he meant by that exactly. Well, it's that by the time he's writing these, he's like thoroughly British, whereas his father, despite being a British subject, really stayed a Belgian. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, the influence of his English stepmother was shown yet again when Adrian was sent at age 11 to a boarding school in England near the city of Birmingham, which is mm. not a great place from what I've heard, but that's neither here nor there. Boarding school, not a, also not a great place. <laughs> yeah. So as Adrian says, the food was bad and the discipline was strict and there was a good deal of mild bullying. Bad enough for a small English boy who had already been in the school system, but... Very overwhelming for a Belgian boy who who felt and probably looked like a strange little object. <laughs> Interesting. 
But this didn't last long, however, since his love of and aptitude for sports meant that he was soon one of the guys being dudes. Mm. In fact, Quickly he says, a Belgian Chad. After after a couple of years, I began to enjoy myself. Direct oh, quote. good. <laughs> well, that's nice. Uh, yeah, just a couple uh, of years all took. Hmm. So thus passed his childhood. Sports, school, and spending holidays with relatives either in Belgium or with friends in England. Uh, while doing the former, during the Christmas vacation, Adrian was skating on Christmas, he was ice skating, when he heard a shot in the woods and found a dead man who had shot himself. It what? was a Yep. This is just sort of oh. stuck in the middle of his memoirs, like one paragraph. By the way, I, you know, was there when a guy killed himself. So it was Adrian's Oof. first face-to-face -face encounter with death, and he found it quite disturbing. Uh, he actually said he had night terrors for a long time, and I can imagine that would be pretty traumatic. You're just ice yeah, skating. Uh... Little Belgian, Belgian schoolboy ice skating on Christmas, and somebody shoots themselves. That's, uh, that's... That that would that would leave a mark on you. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. I would imagine. So by the time he had finished school, uh, Adrian had become, quote, indistinguishable from every other self-conscious British schoolboy. Well, they got him. I don't they, know what to say, but they got him. They got him. Rip. <laughs> and so as uh, as proper, he was sent to Oxford, where all the best self-conscious British schoolboys end up. Hmm. However, it ended up being something of a challenge to be actually be admitted, since the only part of, the, of his education up to this point that he had actually applied himself to had been sports, and back in these wild, primitive times, that actually wasn't good enough to get you into a good college. Oh, wow. Crazy. I know. Culture shock. Oof, oof. What would we do without all of our football players in chemistry class? I don't know, man. So, after a few delays caused by failing exams and a riding accident, which is classic Adrian, yeah. uh, he finally made it in and began that classic British academic life, which he describes thusly. We lived in great comfort, had indulgent fathers, ran up exorbitant bills, and developed a critical appreciation for good wine. We were unable to develop a taste for the ladies, as in those days they were barred from the universities. <laughs> Fair enough. So I don't sounds, know. sounds like just guys being dudes again. It's, yeah, it's good wine, exorbitant bills, indulgent fathers, but no women. I mean, some people would... Some Something to ponder. Some people would like that, let's be honest. So, many of uh, Adrian's Oxford classmates were quite intelligent sorts, as you can imagine, and ended up as men of high standing and position in society, but Adrian did not care about that. I measured them, he says, by their prowess at sport or their taste in burgundy, and remained unimpressed by their mental gymnastics. <laughs> well, he... <laughs> so, okay, maybe, maybe I'm... Maybe I'm, uh... Correct me if I'm wrong on this so far. He doesn't appear to be a nerd. No, he's definitely not a nerd. Okay, he's much more, like, focused on, like, practical, not theoretical stuff. Um, he just wants to catch frogs and ride horses. Yeah, he, I, I'm, I'm getting that. His dad is more of a thinker, and he's more of, like, a experiencer. Yeah, that, that yeah. is true. So, soon enough, however, and I'm sure this will come as a shock, it began to become clear that Adrian wasn't getting on well with his education. Well, there you his, go. <laughs> his first term at Oxford, and I love this, quote, was a great success as far as cricket was concerned, but scholastically it was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> 
So he was supposed to be on the trajectory to become a lawyer, like his father, but he failed the preliminary exams for legal studies and almost ran away to join the French Foreign Legion. But his college at Oxford was willing to give him another chance, so he was in a little bit of a quandary whether to run away or to try again. But then, a miracle happened. Quote, The whole problem was solved for me most mercifully by the outbreak of the South African War. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, that's convenient. There's just a war. Exactly. And here he goes on. Aaron, would you please? At that moment, I knew once and for all that war was in my blood. I was determined to fight and didn't no, mind who... That should say mind. And didn't mind who or what. <laughs> I didn't know why the war had started, and I didn't care on which side I was to fight. If the British didn't fancy me, I would offer myself to the Boers, and at least I did not endow myself with the Napoleonic powers or imagine I would make the slightest difference to whatever side I fought for, whichever side I fought for. Causes, politics, and ideologies are better left to the historians. Eh, I feel vaguely insulted, but he does only have one eye, so... He's, he or, still has both eyes at this point. Oh, okay, oh, you're right, you're right. Okay. And both hands. Yeah. But yeah, so well. he just he just wants to have a war. He doesn't really care. Yeah, he's like a he's like a battle droid, not a Sith Lord or a Jedi or whatever. For just that's that's an example for uh, for our Marvel fans. <laughs> Incredible. So he knew that his family would not approve of him joining the British Army, since the Belgians, like most reasonable people, sympathized with the Boers. Uh, also, the fact that he was underage and not a British subject meant that he was not legally able to enlist. And I know I wrote le legally able to English, but <laughs> <laughs> legally able to enlist. So uh, naturally, he simply made up a false name and age to enlist. Well, like, now know. hold on. Even that is a type. Even if that is a typo, well, there's actually something true to that, isn't there? He was not legally able to English. Yeah, so he couldn't he couldn't join up with the yeah I get it I get it so he simply signed up with a false name, etc. Yeah, pretending so, to be English. The enlistment office was a scene of chaos and pandemonium as their you know volunteers are showing up and there's you know nobody really wants to actually do any checking so no one's really going to question whether anyone was who they said they were so he enlisted simply as Mister Carton. Oh well, that's good, <laughs> Mister Carton. And the process really boxed himself in there. The with process a name like that. was so lax that he actually returned the next day to enlist again for a friend with bad eyesight who couldn't pass the medical exam. What? So wait, he stood in for a guy? Yep. So he first and enlisted on his own under a fake identity, and then enlisted under his friend's identity, so that that guy could get in. But his friend had bad eyesight. I mean, he's not going to be much of a shooter, is he? Yeah, but you know. He's you he know? really wants to fight, huh? <laughs> I guess so. So okay. the next few months were spent in training, which Adrian did not enjoy, as he found it all too mild and refined for him. Like, he seemed to be, he seemed to be under the impression, that, you know, like, as soon as he enlists, he's going to be, you know, charging a, you know, a, an enemy trench and throwing bombs and blowing stuff up. And like, he doesn't, he wasn't really expecting, oh, yeah, mostly I'm going to be sitting in a tent for a long time. Here's how so, to make a bed. <laughs> yeah, so he was not not happy about this. He found it all too mild and refined, since he had been, you know, longing for a sort of 
rough, raw life experience of war, and instead he was, yeah, like, folding sheets. But finally, <laughs> after several months, his regiment sailed away from England, much to his relief, and he found the nasty and rough living conditions on board the ship to be more to his liking, and he said that he even preferred cleaning up vomit off the decks to the refinement of life in the camp in England. You know, uh, just to comment on that real quick, um, there are people like this. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people like this who would find themselves happier doing something rough and, and or gross or challenging in some way than, you know, having a desk job and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a conversation piece I've run across many times this year. It's very interesting. Lots of people are getting tired of the whole desk jockey thing, it seems. Yep. yep. So after his arrival in South Africa, they still weren't fighting. And Adrian was getting restless, because now he's yeah. just still sitting in a tent, just now on a different continent. At one point, he was sent to collect some fresh Australian horses from the dock and bring them back to the camp, but, having engineered them through Cape Town, I got sick of them and let them all loose in the open country and arrived back empty-handed. I was luckily unnoticed in the dock. They were casual days. <laughs> okay, well... So yeah, he's he's not really... Not really one for the discipline. He just really wants to fight something and have exciting experiences. Yeah, uh, he's he's still not matched the uh, the thrill of hearing a gunshot in the woods yet. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. So still, he didn't get to do any fighting, and the more dreary weeks of training found my war fever drying in my veins and being rapidly replaced by bully beef, hard biscuits, and strong tea. <laughs> okay. So he then fell ill with a fever and had to retire to a hospital. After hmm. he left the hospital, very likely before he was supposed to leave the hospital, kind of reading between the lines, he simply joined the nearest military unit he saw, which was a South African colonial regiment, and soon found himself attempting to cross a river with them. However, the river was in full view of a Boer detachment, and he was shot through the stomach and the groin. Ooh. When he was back in medical care and was being questioned about the enemy, an officer asked him if there were many Boers holding the crossing, to which he responded, No, but the few were very good shots. Well, clearly. We did which talk about them which, being yeah, excellent that's shots. That's classic for the Boers, though. Yeah. So he was now actually in the same hospital he had escaped from before, and in considerably worse condition since he had been shot in the groin. Yeah, that would that would do it. And in addition to this, his real identity was discovered, his family was notified, and he was sent home. Oh, so you go over there to do some fighting, you get sniped by some boars, you lie up in a bed for a couple of days, and then they're like, you're not really Mr. Carton. I and know. then you go home. Just can't catch a break. <laughs> no. So his family welcomed him far more war warmly than he had expected. Um, they, you know, they sort of decided to just sort of ignore the whole thing. We're not going to make a big deal of it. You know, we're glad to have our son back, even if he was shot in the groin. <laughs> but his uh, his first taste of war was an utter disappointment. This is what he says, Aaron. I do not think it possible for anyone to have a duller dose of war, and I return bereft of my uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> bereft of glory, my spirits deflecting with every mile. So Poor yeah. bastard. Not great. He does all that and then just gets shot in the groin and has to leave. <laughs> so his family graciously decided to ignore the whole incident and sent him back to Oxford, 
where his war wound made him quite popular with his fellow young men. I mean, that's kind of cool. Like, you know, you're at the lunch table and people are showing off their, uh, I got this scar falling off a horse. It's like, yeah, well, I was shot in the groin by people with hard to pronounce names. Pulls his pants down right there. <laughs> There's just nothing available. <laughs> They're like, wow, wow, that's weak. That guy's a war hero. <laughs> Yep. So, nevertheless, he was still very restless and just couldn't see himself following his father's path and becoming a lawyer. So over Christmas vacation, he traveled back to Egypt to ask his father's permission to leave Oxford and take up a career as a soldier. To his surprise, his father was sympathetic and agreed. Which makes you wonder, what would have happened if he just asked his father in the first place instead of, it, you know, the whole fake identity and leaving without telling anyone thing? Who knows? Who knows? But I'm, I'm, it's nice to hear that his father was, uh, supportive of him. Though I, I kind of wonder about that after he was shot twice already. <laughs> no, after, son, don't uh, go. You don't need to be shot again. No, instead he's like, you yes. You don't have enough groin left to spare. <laughs> it's not like they can shoot it again. <laughs> so, after saying his goodbyes to his English friends, Adrian took a boat to South Africa thinking that by enlisting in a colonial regiment rather than the British army proper, he would be more likely to get to the action, since after all, his only engagement before had been with a colonial unit when he'd escaped from the hospital and just kind of followed them. So he thinks, ah, if I go join a colonial unit, which he would be allowed to do, I'll probably get some action. His lifetime enthusiasm for out-of-doors activities served him well, since he was able... I did it again! I wrote English instead of enlist! He was, able, he was to, able to English. <laughs> he was able to enlist in an Imperial Light Horse Regiment, passing physical and riding tests that only about 5% of the applicants got through. Well, that's an impressive thing to do, passing a riding test without a groin. <laughs> <laughs> he still has a groin, he just got shot. He has children later, Aaron, he has a groin. I'm still making the jokes, I don't care. <laughs> So soon after joining up, Adrian was promoted to corporal, but he only lasted 24 hours before being demoted for threatening to hit his sergeant. He does not tell us why, simply remarking that he was quick-tempered and very resentful of being cursed or shouted at. So, the military <laughs> discipline isn't, isn't quite up to par. Yeah, I, I get in the sense that he might have been happier amidst the boars, huh? Yeah, for real though, actually, I... I think he 100% would have been. Yeah. So after a few months, he was commissioned as an officer. Um, still, That's however, good. he wasn't actually getting to fight. He's just kind of there. The you living know, condition... On, on, on. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I just love that he knows what he wants. He just wants to fight. Like, commissioned as an officer, no. No, no, no. You know, uh, get, gets the support of his father, don't care. Just gotta fight people. I just want to fight people. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yep, and it's just not happening. Like, a lot of people who probably didn't want to fight were fighting. Yeah, yeah. Now, Interesting. The, uh, the living conditions were pretty rough in the field, which we talked about a lot during the Boer episodes. Um, you know, that it's out there in the... the prairies, the veldt, as I think they call it. You know, it's it can be pretty rough out on the move. Yeah. Um, but the fighting that was supposed to make it all worthwhile for Adrian just wasn't happening. He says that his life, quote seemed to consist of trekking from one end of the country to the other without aim or object. 
my vivid imaginings of charging bowers single-handed and dying gloriously with a couple of posthumous Victoria Crosses were becoming a little hazy. <laughs> well, this is an interesting guy. I'm really glad. I love I... it. All he he just he just wants to do like a bayonet charge and die and have everybody be like that guy was a badass. Good for that guy. He went out there and got shot, but he died gloriously. It's Ever... so interesting. Yeah, that's really it's... seems to be all he wants, and it's not think, happening. Would uh, wouldn't there be a name for this? Like some kind of a mental illness for this kind of thing? These I don't days? know. I'm. Back I'm then, they were a... like, well, that's that's just Adrian. He just wants to go shoot people and stab them with bayonets. <laughs> I'm there sure there's again, some... Catching the frogs. <laughs> I'm sure there's some, you know, long polysyllabic name invented <coughs> by some skeevy con artist from New York for this. Mm, presumably. Anyway, my distrust of the medical field aside, um, he tried to convince his colonel to let him try and single-handedly cut down a barbed wire fence which was being covered by Boer snipers. So he's, he's with whatever of his groin is left, he's back ready for round two. Well, <laughs> even if they shot it, they clearly didn't shoot it enough because the groin of this guy... Is <laughs> get weird anyway. Um, <laughs> but the colonel told him that he was a damned fool. Hmm. So, he says, The colonel may have been right, but he hurt my pride badly, and I had to swallow the disagreeable knowledge that I had made a bloody fool of myself. Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, at least he's admitting it, right? Yeah, like, he can see the reasonableness that... Officers can't actually let people like him do their own thing. Yeah. It would be, ter it would be a I... terrible way to carry out a war. How old was he at this point? Um, early 20s. Okay, okay, so he's still got some of that fire in him, I can tell, but he's start. he might be maturing a little bit here. It's interesting to watch. Alright. Well, uh, as you'll see, I don't know how mature he was, but, uh, we'll, uh, all right, we'll get all right. there. <laughs> so, with, uh, with not much happening, um, in South Africa, and him not being allowed to do a, you know, bonsai death charge against a barbed wire fence, um, <laughs> he was dissatisfied. So when Adrian was offered a promotion a higher level of commission. He accepted it, and was told he was being sent to join a Dragoon Regiment in India. Mm. And so, after returning to his family in Egypt between deployments, and while he was awaiting his shipment to India, he then heard that there was another war, and applied to transfer to Somaliland, where a British campaign was underway in the roughly 20-year-long on-and-off war against Saeed Mohammed Abdullah Hassan, who was the leader of the dervishes and was a frequent opponent of the British, the Italians, and the Ethiopians. There's sort of 20 years of on-off rebellion in Somaliland against those three powers, and there was a new British campaign happening, so he, even though he just signed up to go to India, he was like, oh, actually, can I go there instead? Yeah. This truly was an adventurous period in history. Like, if it didn't work out in South Africa, go to Somalia or Somaliland. Um... Or, you know, go to India. Like, you could go all over the world if you were part of the British Empire and what it was yep. doing. And I could see that being attractive to adventuring types. And, you know, we give Britain a lot of shit. But at one point, they were, I mean, they were the king of the world, basically. Um, Which is really is quite remarkable for a, like, shitty island. <laughs> yeah, especially looking at, like, a, like, today. Like, you look at it and you're like, it's how so did small. that happen? It's like you... you 
you're looking at the map of the world, think what's the most powerful country in the world for a very long period of time, you're not going to pick that little island off the coast. Yeah. So what was it? What do you think it was that made the British Empire so powerful? Like, what was the core that made it the way it was? Was it just the sea? Was it mercantile? I mean... I mean, it was it was a lot of things. One of the big things is that the British were pioneers in fi- in uh, the financial business. And mm. so they had they developed systems of credit and insurance and stuff that were really ahead of all their continental rivals. And so you had it was possible for the British to undertake much bigger enterprises very quickly and very easily because you could get access to large lines of credit. You could get financing, you could you could get insurance and things. And so it was just Mm. they were able to do things on an international level that a lot of their neighbors had a lot of catching up to do to reach. And that's the other part of it is where is the manpower coming from for all of this? I mean, I I seem to remember seeing lots of pictures of people who are clearly not, you know, ethnically British in British uniforms, apparently working for or on behalf of the British Empire. Is that where they got a lot of their manpower was other nations? Well, you have to remember that a lot of their um, their empire was things like the like Egypt was a protectorate, and so Egypt technically had the Egyptian army, which was staffed with British officers and supplied, you know, with British weapons. But the rank and file were a lot of uh, you know native troops who were trained by the British. Hmm. And they would in the so just forgive me. I I find this fascinating. So you have natives working on behalf of this empire um trained by the empire armed by the empire going against locals oh well you're usually going against neighboring countries and you have to Mm. each each place is different so like in egypt you know a lot of egyptians were resentful of british rule but the alternative to british rule was ottoman rule and a lot of Mm. egyptians even though they didn't like the british would rather be under british rule than ottoman rule so it's kind of you know it it really is like the the term is the great game and it kind of is it's like a complicated strategy game where it's all about weighing who is going to resent who more and so who's who's going to be willing to side with whom in different different you know ways you could play out the conflicts i see and i could see why this would be long term expensive for britain itself it appears to be that the empire itself is uh, connected to something that's not the British themselves, exactly? I mean, the financial system you just described, um, you know, essentially financial technology that allowed them to pull this stuff off that didn't exist in other countries. Like, I could see why that would put them ahead of the game, or the great game, as you might say. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm, interesting. Okay. Anyway, yeah, let's not get too much into it. Don't want to get distracted from Adrian and his groin. I know. <laughs> So, as you can imagine, he was denied this transfer to Somaliland because he was told they weren't going to transfer him again while he was in the middle of a transfer. So off he went to India. And to put it bluntly, he hated India. Oh, great. This is how he sums it up, Aaron. Uh, Yes. India from the start held no mysterious fascination for me. It was tawdry. It emitted revolting smells and noises, and its only attraction in my eyes was that I knew it to be a wonderful center for sport. (laughs) It emitted revolting smells and noises. That's... I've known people like that. That's not fair. (laughs) But I love how it's always always the sports with this guy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it sucked, apparently. 
But mm. Adrian got busy working to qualify for his polo team. Oh. Yep, yep. Sadly, however, before he finished qualifying for the polo team, the regimental polo team, he was sent to a training course which was far away from the nearest polo ground, and he was very mm. upset about this. He's a long way from polo. Okay, I get it. <laughs> but after finishing the course, he was deployed to Mutra in northern India, and this posting was very much to his liking, as his cavalry regiment was the only unit there. So there were no pesky infantry milling about and breaking things, and most importantly, there were no generals there, which, he says, added enormously to its charm, in my opinion. Even better, there was uh, very good hunting in the area, and Adrian added boar hunting to his list of favorite things. He even calls it <laughs> the finest and most exciting sport in the world. Oh, wow. Well, if you gotta pick and, one. Do you, I don't know, do you know how boar hunting's done? Uh, I seem to remember in the Middle Ages they used big spears. Yep, on horseback with a spear. Mm. So they so did it that way yep. here too. Yep. Wow. Literally chasing <laughs> boars with a, with a spear and trying to, and they're you know boars are dangerous, so it's it's actually a fairly dangerous sport. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not chasing a red fox with your whole entourage in your the backyard of your giant mansion back in England. Yep. So he says that since there were uh, no polo facilities in Mutra, he just tried to transfer his polo enthusiasm into horseback boar hunting instead, which is a classic RPG move, respecting your character when you enter a new area. Are you sure you want to be British? <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps unsurprisingly, he ended up getting a nice set of cracked ribs before too long when his horse stumbled while he was chasing a boar and rolled over on him. Ugh. Oof. Which I imagine that's unpleasant. That is a heavy, heavy animal. And uh. then now things, now things are really going to go off the rails. So oh, while boy. he was in the hospital, he got into an altercation with one of the Indian servants in the hospital who laughed at him after he missed the rock he threw at him. So they had an altercation. He's in his hospital bed. He throws a rock at the man. The man dodges it and laughs. And so tempers flared and Adrian shot the man in his ass with a small caliber <laughs> pistol. Was it a flow bear gun? I don't know. See, the details are very vague here. He doesn't say what kind of gun it was. But I assume it must have been, like, a low-powered pistol. A, a pistol, because I can't imagine he's laying in his hospital bed with a rifle. <laughs> and, I, and it must have been a low-powered weapon, since Adrian assures us, quote, that it was no doubt inconvenient for him, but certainly not dangerous. <laughs> he shot so, him in the eye. <laughs> so it must have been, I believe, do you want to know the phrase he, I didn't put it here in the, the not script, but do you want to know the phrase he uses? Yes. I peppered his tail. <laughs> so maybe it was like a pepper box pistol or something, like a little shotgun that he just had. <laughs> so yeah, he, I don't know what it was, but it was. It must have been pretty weak because it was certainly not dangerous. It was just a you know the old friendly shot in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No doubt inconvenient, but certainly not dangerous. <laughs> certainly not. This is all good fun. <laughs> Oh, this guy. This guy. Like, you know, you lose your groin once and you're just out for out for revenge on the world, I guess. Yep. <laughs> so he was very nearly kicked out of the army for this because that's kind of frowned upon. Shooting attendants in the hospital you're in is kind of yeah. frowned upon. 
But he ended up being allowed to pay a rather large fine instead. And since, you know, his father is a very successful lawyer, money is not an issue for him. So he right. pays a very large fine and is allowed to stay in the army. There were apparently a lot of these sort of questionable antics among the British officers in India. And he talks a lot about them. But I just, I just wrote down one here, one story that he tells from his posting and that one of his officers went to bed after having dined too well and not too wisely, which I assume means that he was stark drunk. Uh, great. Um, <laughs> and so during the night, the men in the neighboring rooms hear wails and groans coming from this man's room. So they investigated and this officer is in his bed and says he can't feel or move one of his legs and thought he was paralyzed. But when they pulled back the blanket, they found that the man had succeeded in forcing both his legs into one leg of his pajamas <laughs> and was fine once they got him e extracted. <laughs> I've lost my leg! Ah! Dear God, my leg is gone! He looks down, there's just a flap of cloth. <laughs> they must have taken it while I was asleep! <laughs> so, good time, just guys being dudes, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. And Adri Adrian describes many more antics and escapades in his memoirs and lots of run-ins with venomous snakes. That was apparently a big issue. Apparently, at one point, they even hired a local snake charmer to lure the snakes out of hiding in their lodgings. And one cabin, inhabited by an officer who scoffed and said he'd never seen any evidence of snakes in his cabin, apparently produced seven venomous snakes when the snake charmer started playing. I want to get this snake charmer's number. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we might have a snake problem here, and we could just put him put him outside the house, let him play his little flute for a little bit, and we'll just watch the things slither out, and lo and behold... <laughs> There'll be uh, more that, than you expected. More than you expected. <laughs> yep. So, in 1904, uh, his regiment was ordered to South Africa, and even though he admits that it had its moments, Adrian was not sorry to leave India... Since, as he says, his first impressions were never dispelled. Do you want to remind us what his first impressions were, Aaron? Uh, I believe he was shot in the stomach, and I think it was the groin by a... No, 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 that was, that, that was South Africa. No, his first impressions of India. Oh, that it emitted strange sounds and, <laughs> and, and smells. I believe it was revolting smells and noises. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> so, Adrian, and this is something that comes up a lot. It's, he doesn't really have any ideological grounding for his military service. He just liked it. And if he hmm. didn't like something, like he didn't like India, he didn't really feel any sort of compunction of duty towards it. Like we saw that when he didn't really care which side he was going to fight on. It was just more convenient to join the British in the Boer War. And if they hadn't taken him, he was going to join the Boers. He just wants to he just wants to have a war. And so this is a sort of paragraph that kind of sums that up from his memoirs, if you would. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> My soldiering was without ambition, and I was solely concerned with the present. I wanted to be fit, to be efficient, to have good ponies, good shooting, a good time, and good friends. Some would find fault with my philosophy, but I was in no way unique. Life played into our hands for those few short years. We had everything. We accepted it. And at any rate, we enjoyed it. Nice. What do you think? I like it. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't fully understand. I don't understand the type of person who just, they just know what they want and they don't really have any reason except that they know deep down, this is what they want to do. Um, I have to have a reason for everything. And that's probably, you know, that could be seen as a flaw or a, you know, I don't know. But, uh, 
I like it when I come across somebody who just knows what they're about. I, it almost doesn't matter what it is, even if it's something like... I mean, there's gonna, there's gonna be soldiers in the world, so you might as well get people who just like it. <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, when he had the opportunity to take leave only a few days after arriving at his posting in South Africa, which was in an area prone to dust storms and was considered one of the worst places in the country to be stationed, he was happy to take it. He wasn't like, no, I should stay here with the others. He's like, I don't like it here. I can leave. I'm going to leave. I don't care if there's dust storms. Send me there. <laughs> well, no, no. It's, he, he arrives here and there's dust storms and it's a shitty place and he has an opportunity to take leave. So he just leaves. Oh, oh, because I, he's not there for this. Like, yes, it's my duty to remain here. He's like, oh, I, I'm eligible for leave. It's shitty here. I'm going to take my leave. Okay, got it. I see. That's more like it. That's That yeah. sounds more like him anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, he spends the winter in Cairo at his father's house, and he naturally occupies himself with his favorite thing, sports. Uh. He uh, wanted to compete in a horse race in Cairo, but he was seven pounds out of the weight class, and with only one day left till the race, he did what any sensible person would do. Oh, He no. layered several sweaters on, along with an overcoat, and went for a six-mile run to the pyramids, and then climbed them and went back. He sweated out the required seven pounds, <laughs> but he did such a number on himself with this uh, harsh weight loss method that he collapsed during the race, fell off his horse, and received a concussion. That is an amazing paragraph that you just read from the not script. I assume... Wow. He lost seven pounds on a single run. Uh, and, of course, climbed the pyramids. Yep. I, that's incredible. It's with Jeez. several sweaters and an overcoat. <laughs> God. I like this. <laughs> yeah, I... I don't know how many sweaters it was. I just wrote several because I think he says something like sweater after sweater. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I just decided to play it safe with several. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the whole concussion thing meant that he could no longer ride for a while while he recuperated. So his father, who really must have been a man of enormous patience, uh, <laughs> procured for his son a motor car, which was probably wow. one of the first ones in Egypt. And with Rolls this Rolls Royce Phantom 2. No, that's uh, that's Indiana Jones, sorry. <laughs> with this uh, motor car, Adrian was able to drive around the pyramids, reaching such staggering speeds as 10 miles an hour and only <laughs> sometimes being overtaken by camels. <laughs> Is that an exaggeration? No, no, that's that's about the fastest you could go. Wow. Such speed. Yeah, cuz even cuz you've two Factors, you know, A, the cars don't get very fast, but also, you don't really have roads designed for cars. That's true. That's true. And it's yep. Egypt, so, yeah. Yep. And he's, like, driving around the pyramids, <laughs> doing low-speed donuts in the sand or something. I just love that there was a time in history where there was some dude climbing the pyramids in overcoats and sweaters, and then later was driving his little car around it at 10 miles an hour. Just, <laughs> you can, like, see the montage that would go with that. Like, like, what's that movie? Um, what, there's a there's a scene in a movie I'm thinking of where somebody's just like doing donuts and expression. Oh, it's that scene from Breaking Bad where uh, Jesse's driving a little go kart and he's crying. That's kind of what I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you can imagine, Adrian was sad to leave these exciting pursuits behind, 
But his leave was coming to an end, so back to South Africa it was. Copy. Yeah. So soon after his return, in July of 1904, Adrian got one of his luckier breaks in life. He was up early exercising with the horses, as was his custom, when he saw a private railway coach pulling up to the local station, which was very uncommon in the rather remote area he was in. Like, you don't really, you don't see private railway coaches very often at, like, this, you know, shitty backwater. Hmm. So, he asked around, and he found out that it was none other than Sir Henry Hillard, the commander-in-chief of the British forces in South Africa, who was apparently supposed to be visiting his regiment, and apparently someone didn't get the memo about that, and so Adrian galloped back, back to camp to warn his general, who rushed back with him to the station to receive Sir Henry. So, otherwise, you would literally would have had the commander-in-chief just sitting at the train station waiting to get picked up. Yeah. Which would be kind of embarrassing, and a lot of people would probably be demoted. Yeah, I would think so. So, as Sir Henry was leaving, he invited Adrian to come to Pretoria as his aide-de-camp. So this is this is a big break for him. He's going to get to be the aide to the commander-in-chief of the British forces in all of South Africa. That's a big deal. Indeed, indeed. And this is this is a little paragraph about about some of his experiences if you want to read that. Oh, sure. We traveled extremely comfortably in those days for Sir Henry had been presented with Kruger's railway coach. See, you, rem you remember that from our Boer episodes when President yeah. Kruger is having to do his presidency on the run in the railway coach? Right, right. So I that's, remember that. That's the one they're riding around in. Man, I just thought of that the other day. Just I just remembered how depressing that was. And anyway, so... <clears throat> I'll, I'll just start again. We traveled extremely comfortably in those days, for Sir Henry had been presented with Kruger's railway coach. We lived in this while reviewing troops all over South Africa. During this time, I came in contact with one of the great ones... Uh, I'm sorry, with many of the great ones, and had the thrill that was, of... That was like getting a little bit H.P. Lovecraft on us. <laughs> oh, oh no. The Great One? <laughs> I came in contact with many of the Great Ones, um, and had the thrill of seeing those two distinguished military leaders, General Smuts and Botha. Botha? Botha. They were universally respected by both friend and ex-foe. I was only able to revere and admire at a distance, and knew little that I should take over a command from General Botha twenty-odd years later. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, so you you remember those those guys from our Boer episode? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, it's so it's so strange to after how badly things went in South Africa for the uh for the Boers. It's just I just I love, I don't know. I love that the sportsmanship of being like, "Ah, oh, yes, they were very good leaders, even though we they were shooting at us and we were shooting at them. They were very good." <laughs> they they shot me in the groin. <laughs> So this uh, this posting forced Adrian to learn a different set of skills than those he had gained from killing boars and falling off horses. As the aide-de-camp to a senior figure, he had to learn to move in social circles beyond just military officers. In particular, he mentions that he had to learn to play bridge in mixed company, since mm. barracks room talk wasn't exactly going to be well-received by Sir Henry's wife and relations. Ah, of course. Of so course. yeah, he's... He's having, he's having to sort of adapt to a very different environment. But he adapted well enough to get along here, though his rear, real inclinations did show through. He began betting people that he could tear a whole pack of cards in half at once, and apparently made quite a bit of money winning these bets and performing other sort of parlor tricks with cards and whatnot. 
and he dryly remarks that the Almighty must have resented my ill-gotten gain, for later he removed one of my hands. What? <laughs> yeah, he just he just puts that in there. It's like, yeah, I made a lot of money doing card tricks and stuff, and uh, then God took my hand. Trade offer. <laughs> Tarek pack of cards in half in mixed company in exchange for one of your hands. <laughs> but, yep, so he, uh, he also did, like, a lot of, uh, Apparently lots of bets involving, like, him f jumping over things and falling off things and betting people that he wouldn't get hurt. Um, which, that seems a little raucous for mixed company, but apparently he was quite a hit. He's just a big kid, <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> <laughs> Look what I can do, falls off horse. <laughs> yep. So, in this posting, uh, he also had ample time to continue his obsession with physical fitness and activity. On one occasion, someone bet him that he couldn't walk the 72 miles to Johannesburg in 10 hours. He accepted the bet and claims he won it with 40 minutes to spare. Uh, wow, well, that's, uh... 10 hours to walk 72 miles? Was it... Was it... Did he ha have to walk? Or could he run, too? I, I don't know. He doesn't say. I would, let's see, how fast do people speed walk? Those, like, speed walkers you see. Uh, oh, like, I don't know, four miles an hour? Maybe? I don't know, let's see. Speed walking is a term used to describe walking at a pace faster than 15 minutes a mile. Okay, so do the math for me here. So speed walking would be four miles an hour, so that'd only be 40 miles in 10 hours. So he must have been going faster than speed walking. He must have been jogging or something. No, he had to be walking. He was just moving his legs super fast. <laughs> like Sonic. All the way to Johannesburg. Well, all that matters is he apparently won the bet. I bet he... I bet... I bet... Well, that's... No, never mind. I'm not going to make bets because I am not Adrian. <laughs> so, he also learned some important lessons about being overly trusting and carefree around this time, when he was swindled out of a large sum of money by a man he had served with years earlier, who claimed to have an incredibly profitable but very time-sensitive investment opportunity. Uh, man, you can get in at the ground level, but you've got to yeah. give me the money today. Um, and he lost a lot of money because the man, uh, the man sent him a telegram that the next day be like, your money's already doubled. And then he never heard from the man again. Ugh. They've always been here, folks. <laughs> yep. He also got rather heavily into betting on horse races. This is not surprising since he likes betting and likes horses. Yep. And he lost money on 32 consecutive races. Thankfully, he wised up and never bet on another race, saying that overall he considered it a cheap price to pay for having learned his lesson. Now that's a stellar attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's that's a lot, though. 32 consecutive losses. Yeah, that is kind of a lot. <laughs> so yeah, his memoirs are very weird because he, he often says things that it seems like there should be more explanation about, but then he just moves on to talking about horses or polo again or sports or something or physical fitness. For example... He sometimes rode his horses in amateur races, and at one point, after he had just won a race, he says, Aaron, A hilarious figure staggered up to me, thanked me, and said he had put 800 pounds on my mare. If I'd, have kn if I'd known it beforehand, I should most certainly have fallen off. 
I don't know what this means. Like, why was the figure hilarious? Why would he have, like, you know, intentionally lost the race if he'd known this man had bet 800 pounds on him? He just he just moves on to talking about other stuff. Probably Polo. Uh, uh, like, there's all the... sorts of little anecdotes in here. And that's that's one of them. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I most certainly should have fallen off. A hilarious figure. Why? Why? I don't know. Just, I should have. Yeah, crazy. so, like, there's... There's a lot that, yeah, you kind of reading the memoirs, you're like, wow, I feel like there was probably a story here that we will now never be able to get. <laughs> All right. So, um, in 1906, so he's been at this for a couple years now because it was 1904. So he's been doing this, this circuit for two years of being the general's aide and playing bridge and throwing himself over tables and breaking card decks in half. Mm. Um, he had to have surgery on one of his injuries. Who knows which one? He doesn't say. Maybe it was his groin. We don't know. <laughs> um, and while he was recovering, he was unable to play any sports, which really grated on him. So after a few weeks, he decided he was better and was back up to his old ways, playing polo and getting hurt. Great. Yep. His memoirs are extremely compressed at this point. He spends a few pages talking about polo, doesn't even mention the fact that in 1907, he swore an oath of loyalty to the king and became an official British subject. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, he, he literally doesn't mention that. I just know that from other sources. Polo's doesn't, more important. I guess it kind of fits well with what we've said about he wasn't really an ideological kind of guy. Like, he doesn't care. It just yeah. was, a you know, kind of a thing, a convenient thing to do to continue to advance in the military and do his thing. Doesn't yeah. Doesn't come up. He does, however, provide the positions of himself and several other players in their polo team. He even says, like, yes, we had uh, Chelmsworth at number three. And, uh, he, like, <laughs> literally describes people's positions in the team, but not <laughs> the fact that he became a British subject. I love this guy. <laughs> yep. So, you know, I, you gotta, you gotta cut somewhere. Yep. So in 1908, and the, the memoirs in about three pages move through eight years. Where of he course. Just, he just talks about Polo. Sir Henry was retiring, so Adrian's pleasant time as his aide was coming to an end, and he was sent to England to rejoin his regiment, which was currently stationed there. Sadly for Adrian, he found things were not quite to his liking because of great catastrophe that had taken place in England, which he describes here, Aaron. Uh. Polo in England had become very professional and lost its charm for me, and temporarily I had given it up. When suddenly I was forced into the open again when Aldrey went sick, and I had to play for the regiment in the interregimental. We won the cup, but I cannot say that I enjoyed the tournament, knowing that the onus would be on me should anything go wrong. In the round before the semi-final, I was badly bumped and my leg was extremely painful. <laughs> I managed to last out the tournament, but on having it x-rayed afterwards, my leg was found to be broken, but already mending. <laughs> there, there you have it, folks. He broke a leg. <laughs> oh, God. It's just going around getting hurt. <laughs> yep. So, in England, Adrian had lots of opportunity for leave, which he took advantage of to engage and travel around Europe, presumably looking for more ways to get hurt. Yeah. 
This was a mostly peaceful time in his life, and his memoirs at this point consist almost entirely of reminiscences of his colleagues, um, and of course, he talks about sports of various kinds. But yeah, he's like, he'll have a paragraph like, Ah, oh, yes, and then there was old Butterworth. He was a great chap, and he did this thing, and then he fell off a horse. It was good fun. Like, it's just, there's no narrative about what he's doing. It's just, it's just little vignettes about people he played sports with. And like, this is... Go on. What I was going to say, it's like getting stuck with that guy who's like really into baseball cards. But he's also like got some of the greatest stories ever. You just have to sit through the him leafing through each card and talking about <laughs> the stats and the rarity before he'll finally be like, "Ah, oh, yes, and I once went to the moon with George Bush." And you're like, "What?" And he's like, "Now this card here, this one's worth five dollars." <laughs> got my got my Onus Wagner card. You're, but um, <laughs> so yeah, it's amazing because yeah, as I said, eight years in a couple pages, and it was also at this time. That Adrian got married. I know this oh. from other sources, because guess what he says about it? Uh, that he got married and that's kind of it? Or nope. Literally does not mention it in his memoirs at all. Uh, come on. <laughs> it's not in there. He does, however, provide some reflections on which British regiments had the best polo teams. <laughs> no joke. At the point chronologically, when he got gets married... His narrative is about which British regiments had the best polo teams. He's a treasure. <laughs> like, I guess, you know, something had to get cut out for length, and by God, it wasn't going to be the polo. <laughs> Can't have that. No, he just loves his polo. Oh, man. I love Amazing, it. isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, this is, um, this is sort of where, uh, chronologically, I wanted to end out the first episode, since... He then, the next time he ge he actually says something about time, it's 1914. We went oh from 1908 God. to 1914, and all he did was talk about polo. <laughs> That's good. I love that. So, 1914, kind of an important year, as you can imagine. I think something happened then. Something might have happened in 1914. But something might have happened. Might happened. <laughs> happened. Happened. And so, uh... He's having an idyllic existence playing polo, but the clouds were gathering, and that storm would define the rest of Adrian's life. And we can see from this excerpt a little hint of what is to come. So this is the this is the longest excerpt here, and I want to just sort of close out with this, since it gives a hint of what's to come. Aaron? Mm. I was once on my way to Bavaria, and I stopped for a few hours in Paris to change onto another train to take me on to Augsburg. On arrival at the German frontier, I got out of my carriage for the customs examination, and as I stepped onto the platform, a German in plain clothes advanced on me and said, Are you an officer? On my replying that I was, he told me to come along with him, and I foresaw the delightful prospect of being locked up. Walking down the platform, my escort said, You are a French officer? And when I disclaimed that and said, No, I am English, his attitude changed completely. He became mostly friendly. Uh, most friendly, sorry. Did all he could to get me through the customs and finished up by showing me his police dogs. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Just guys <laughs> being dudes. Yeah. <laughs> On thinking the incident over afterwards, I imagined that a German agent must have marked me down in Paris, jumped to the conclusion that my name was a French one, and wired information to his people on the frontier. This was in 1910, and it showed how closely the frontier was being watched by the Germans, how deep was their animosity towards the French, 
and how elaborate their precautions. Mm, things are happening. So yeah, a period of about six years passed. In just a few pages of the memoirs, while he was engaged in traveling around Europe, since he had a lot of freedom while he was stationed in England, so I thought since World War One is about to start, that would be a good place to leave off for today and pick it back up next time with more polo and injuries, because he still has to lose a hand and an eye. God has he, ordained it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's bound to happen. I do love this in, this quote you included, though, because I love these, like, it's like a local weather report before a really big storm. Um... You know what I mean? It's like, you've got a guy out there on the ground like, hey, I think it's about to rain! And there's a lot more drama to it than somebody sitting in a studio being like, we're calling for light showers here at 8 a.m. and it'll be pretty pretty brutal. Here's the here's the details. But to hear, like, he was just traveling and suddenly there's all these, like, normal people, like, something's weird, something weird's going on, but here's my dogs! <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I think it's a great place to, to end for now. But yeah, really, like, I, I had like whiplash when I was going through the memoirs and realized six years passed in a couple pages that don't mention his marriage. <laughs> well, there there are some people who are just like that, and they really like polo and fighting. So there's yep. that. Yep. So I think we'll, uh, yeah, when we, when we start it up next time, I'm going to probably start with whatever little information I can gather about his family life, since he didn't see fit to write about any of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that'd be good. With a quick little recap, and we'll be back right into the story on the second part of this episode. Yeah. So did you have any more thoughts about uh, about Adrian Carton de Viert, also known as Mr. Carton? I love that we have a category of episodes now that's just weird soldiers. It is kind of a theme, isn't it? Yevgeny Maximov. Yeah. Um, the Mad Baron. Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, what was the other one? Yeah, Yevgeny Maximov is the first one that comes to mind. I, I think it's really funny. Danae's Rates, that was pretty interesting. Not exactly crazy, but, you know, kind of the same thing. Just a soldier who saw some crazy stuff at a time in the world where a lot was happening. I don't think he talked about polo at all, though, so we're going to have to dock him some points for that. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to dock him some polo points, that's for sure. But... He can pick him back up uh, later on if he adopts the polo and goes golfing or something. <laughs> I don't know. That was really that was really bad. It's probably time for us to head up to the surface. What do you say? I think it is. All right, off we go. So, Aaron, if you had to love a sport so much that you talked about it instead of your marriage in your memoirs, what would it be? What sport? Hmm. Bumper cars. Yeah. If I was super into bumper cars and I was, like, really enthusiastic about it, I don't think anybody would mind that I didn't mention I was married. Just, like, <laughs> the sheer excitement that if I had the same excitement that Adrian has about polo, about bumper cars, uh, nobody would care because bumper cars are automatically hilarious. So, I don't know. It's like, I yes, didn't, didn't you get married? Well, you see, the 4th Bainbridge Duke's own fine regiment had this bumper car. It was just stupendous. Yes, but, <laughs> yes, but who was your wife? Who, could you tell me her first name? Well, you see, this bumper car goes at <laughs> point two miles per hour faster than the others. And if you wear the right clothing... 
you can get an extra bump out of it. <laughs> yes, but who who were your children? And this one over here. Yeah, that's hilarious. But <laughs> what about you? You got to pick a sport. Talk about your memoirs. Uh, well, it probably wouldn't be boxing because who wants to see, you know, Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather hug it out for 45 minutes? Um, oh. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's see. Hmm. Maybe like the really cheesy WWE wrestling. I knew a guy like that. <laughs> I, I've also known people like that. <laughs> yeah, like he had a he had a girlfriend and she was like way out of his league and all he talked about was WWE and you could tell it annoyed her, but she didn't say anything. She just like, oh, here he goes again, and she'd ro roll her eyes and he'd just be like, yo, dude, I. I'm gonna, let's, it's gonna be great. It was hilarious. What a character. I never disliked him. I thought that was kind of endearing. I love, I love the, the copy pasta. You know, do you know the one I mean? No. It's the, the 1998 Undertaker one. No, I, I'm not familiar with this. So it's a copy pasta where people will respond to things, but at the end they'll be like, but don't let this distract you from the fact that in 1998, The Undertaker threw mankind off Hell in a Cell and plummeted 16 feet through the announcer's table. Oh, and people yeah. would just, like, slip it into the middle of an actual, like, long statement about something. That's great. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. All right, well, I think it might be time to bring the show to an end for today, and we'll be back. If you hate us, you're probably a hospital servant who got shot in the ass, so consider funding the show and refilling our weapons by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. And our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration, and we have hired him again to update our aging facade, so you can look forward to that soon. I'm finally going to be a real boy. You're finally going to be in the picture. It's going to be great. So you can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com, soon to feature a new We Talk About Dead People poster. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the kingdom of God play you out. Did we do that last time? We did that last time, yeah. Damn. I forgot so, to edit that. Uh, we'll close out and let the the British Empire play We've you out. We've done that one, too. Dang it! Um, the, well, let the Belgians play you out. Is that new enough? And let... Oh, how about an Indian snake charmer play you out? Let's do that. And okay. We'll close out and let an Indian snake charmer play you out. There wasn't a spark of excitement until the game ended. Then, Bedlam. The Polo oh Grounds, God! New York, oh home God! of the old giants, oh and a shrine to such legendary figures as John McGraw, oh Christy Mathewson, and other old-timers. And in later years, the stars like Bill oh, Terry, oh, who oh, hit 401 oh in 1930. I've had this, had this for years, I haven't owned it. Bell Ott, who hit 511 home runs, the all-time high in the National League. Yeah! Ah! And Carl Hubble. Who can forget Hubble's feet in these polo grounds in the 1934 All-Star Game when he fanned the American League's murderous row? Down went Rome. <laughs>